Merry Christmas, church. Thanks for the Merry Christmas back. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Uh, today, as you saw from this, this video, it's an exciting day, a new series, an Advent series called His Name Will Be. We're going to be in the ninth chapter of Isaiah the peculiar promise of this new sort of king that's given in Isaiah 9. So we're going to be here for four weeks as we wait for the Lord Jesus this holiday season. Now today we're going to see that his name will be, in particular, Wonderful Counselor. We're going to focus in on that name even as we build up to that with most of the sermon by all the context in the first several verses of Isaiah Chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to read Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. Isaiah 9, 1 through 6. And we stand to honor God's word. But there will be no gloom for for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For... To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. You can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that goes far beyond our expectations and our thoughts. Just like your coming has gone beyond our expectations and really blown the minds of people who were expecting you the best they could and had uh, objective things that they could see in scriptures like this, and yet you far superseded our expectations. And Lord, there are those of us here today that are expecting life to go a certain way and it's not going the way we expect it. But Lord, I pray that you would give us light in our darkness to see that your provision is always better than we expect. Your timing is always different than what we expect. Lord, I pray that just not knowing And knowing that you know, 
how to lead us better than we know how to lead ourselves would bring a supernatural peace to everyone this Advent season who is waiting on your coming. And I pray that this hope and this peace would multiply to joy and increase and multiply the nation of those who have faith in you. It's a lot that I'm asking in a simple church service, but Lord, you are an amazing God. May you have your way with our time today. Amen. Today we're going to walk through this passage from start to finish, all six verses, and highlight the unusual nature of this peculiar promise that we see here in Isaiah 9. I imagine that the original hearers, in a, in a time of crisis in Israel, in a in a time where the nation was tattered and torn to shreds and there was no security in the day. I can only imagine that the original people who heard this prophecy from Isaiah thought it strange. Almost thought maybe, I don't even understand what's, what he's saying, but what I do understand, it just seems too good to be true. I, I can only imagine maybe they thought it was, it was some sort of divine hyperbole. I mean, God coming and taking the whole government on his shoulders, but God's a child. I don't understand it. It seems too good to be true. And then fast forward several centuries, and you see the fulfillment of this promise and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you take in the person who is Jesus, the wonderful counselor that he really is, and you'll see that this promise isn't too good to be true, but it's, as I often say, too good to not be true. No human mortal mind could think up or make up a person as wonderful as the person of Jesus. So let's read back through this passage, starting with verse 1, and build context for the strange fulfillment of this promise. And we'll see, hopefully, how we can relate to how we, too, need this promise and its utter fulfillment in our lives. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or the Gentiles. Isaiah wrote this prophecy almost seven centuries before it was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. He was writing about events that took place so almost seven centuries after the time of him writing it, but he was writing as if they were as sure as present realities that he was seeing all around him. And so we see the first thing that this promise of God does is that gives us, number one, a hope that absorbs gloom and anguish. Verse 1 talks about gloom and anguish. And that was the, the context of where Paul was, or <laughs> I've, I've been in Paul for all year, where Isaiah, Paul was in somewhat of a gloom. This is the context that Isaiah was writing from, gloom and anguish. And as far as we know, the anguish came from the gloom of darkness in the leadership and failed leadership in the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. In other words, it was anguish that could be traced back 
to failure of government. And y'all, this is so often the case for human suffering on the globe today. And in world history, it's suffering caused at least by poor leadership, whether in a nation or in a church or a school or a family or the failure of what we call self-government. Poor leadership functions as one of the primary causes for anguish suffered by those under that leadership. And when you feel this anguish, and you sit in it, and it's kind of the air you breathe, and in the midst of that, you hear this promise that there's this new kind of leader, this God-child, wonderful counselor type of leader that's going to be so powerful that the government will be upon his shoulders. And he leads, he vanquishes war with peace, which is a strange way of putting it, that the, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. To this time, the world had not ever seen something that there was an increase of government with peace. It's usually the other way around. A government increases by inflicting terror and war and dominion over others. But this peace, the government will be on the shoulders of this new kind of leader. It had to be a type of hope that seemed out of this world because they had not yet experienced it in their world. Hope absorbs gloom, the gloom of failed leadership. And a little more context about the leadership failure within Israel. Because it's important to know that what was happening in Israel and in their leadership was one of the biggest problems, the failed government that they were facing. It wasn't just the, the climate, the existential issues going on around them. It wasn't even the terrible uh, enemy nations that were pressing in on them and doing all sorts of awful things to the nation of Israel. It was their own lack of qualified government and qualified leaders that was playing out in a curse that led to poverty and famine. See, as an older man, Isaiah had lived through kind of the last moment of, of dignified leadership in the nation of Israel, somewhat dignified leadership. And by the time he got to being an older man, a younger king named Ahaz took the throne. And Ahaz was a young man who was wise in his own eyes. And he turned his back on the God of Israel. He rebelled against God and he began to abuse the people of Israel. He started taking things, possessions, and people from the people of Israel. He was exchanging the the things of Israel, the the people of Israel, making exchanges with enemy nations. And he even sacrificed his own son to the fire unto the God of Molech in a dark moment in Israelite history. And so we say gloom and darkness. There was a curse on the land. And I want to have a, a brief moment of political commentary right now for us. Because as much as the struggle and pain of our uh, failed attempts at 
govern, government happened in our country, it's small beans compared to the failure and the evil that was in Israel. And yet we, we joke as if our world has fallen apart here. In, uh, in, in February, we're going to get back into the book of Romans and get to Romans 13. And Paul, this time actual the Apostle Paul, I'm not talking about Isaiah right now, he's going to show us how we can be what, what he calls resident aliens, where we can actually function with dignity and respect in, in, a, in a nation where the leadership is less than ideal according to our standards. If Paul could do it, and if Isaiah could have a type of hope that absorbed any sort of gloom of his present-day reality, then how much more us who have the Holy Spirit? Now, it's okay to grieve things as Christians, things that, that are happening in Washington, for instance, so long as we're grieving the same things that God is grieving. Maybe behavior of adults on both sides of the aisle that are not treating others with dignity or honoring God. We can grieve, but when our grief turns to despair, it shows that there's something wrong with the hope that we have in the true king. And when we start to ridicule and mock our leaders, like I've been guilty of, I do impersonations of these leaders. I did one the other day, and I sense the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not laughing at this. And I can only imagine Isaiah like doing some sort of ridicule or joke about King Ahaz. I don't think he was laughing. I don't think Paul was joking about about the emperor Nero like that. And so it's redemptive for us in our day to grieve only to the degree that our ideal that we're hoping for and we see as a present-day reality that's going to turn to an increase of more and more and more of the kingdom of God, that our hope is not based on a conservative or a liberal idea, but on the kingdom of God, which is so much else. So in other words... When we look out on the world today and we see leaders that aren't quite doing what we prefer, aren't, aren't quite being wonderful human beings, and we can identify with the weariness of the world in failed leadership in our country or in any country, it would be wrong to not identify with the weariness. We should be weary of people that are not honoring other human beings, displaying humanity, but a thrill of hope and a weary world rejoices, right? When this type of hope in an eternal God anchors your soul, then you won't have to mock or ridicule or despair. We can have pity on the rich and powerful or the powerless and disenfranchised and impoverished because we know that we are the wealthy ones and the rich and the powerful in the spirit when we have Jesus in our heart, and when we know that this resurrected one who came in a dark time, that he gives us a hope that just absorbs any sort of gloom that the world would suffer under. So, political commentary done for now. We can have an anchor that makes us capable of identifying with the pain of those in the world, but transcending the despair that others could suffer as an ends of that pain. And I'll give you an example of how Isaiah did it. He writes in the former time, describing his current time. Isn't that, go back to verse 1. Look at that again. 
He says, in the former time, but he's describing what he was currently in the midst of. So he saw it so clearly. And then he says, in the former time, the land brought into contempt. Well, he was in the middle of all that contempt as he was writing us. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. At the time that he wrote it, though, he was in all this anguish. And yet he could write as if all that anguish was over. One theologian wrote this about how Isaiah did this. It says, Isaiah's vision projects his thoughts out of the tragic present as if it were already past. And I asked church, can you imagine having such a strong anchor of hope that it swallows up your present pain as if it were already a thing of the past? So when someone ridicules you, when someone mocks you, when you suffer under your boss in ways that it's just not fair, instead of your first go-to feeling being, I'm going to get him back, I'm mad about this, you having a thought that, oh, this isn't as real. This thing that happened to me, it's not as real as the promise of joy and peace. That's mine in Jesus. Can you imagine having this sort of hope And let me tell you, this is not mind over matter. This isn't just kind of some mind tricks you play with yourself, some new age type of thing. This is what matters most, absorbing and swallowing up what matters least. It's not positive thinking. It's not mindfulness. It's the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not yet seen. It's the eternal promise of unseen glory that's given to us and revealed to us in the Bible, becoming so real in your life that your present turmoil becomes comparatively insignificant. Now, I didn't say insignificant. I said comparatively insignificant. Because we're not just pretending like we're not suffering, but we're not glorifying our suffering. We're glorifying something more glorious and it holds so much more weight that it displaces things that don't belong at the forefront of our focus. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do just this. Jesus doesn't always just make your problems go away. He gives you a joy and a peace and a hope that has the power to absorb and burn away any lesser thing. The pain and anguish in your life Often he can heal, and he will. And sometimes, I I don't know why he does sometimes, and sometimes he doesn't. I don't have to know, though. My job is to trust him, that he knows. And sometimes he'll just let you suffer through things. Remember, this is the same Jesus who said, Father, if, if if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And he went and suffered the most terrible human suffering you can imagine, the Bible says, for the joy set before him. It wasn't implicit joy in the suffering. It was joy in the promise that was absorbing his suffering because of what he would do for us on the cross and how he would pay for us to be restored in relationship to him. Hope in the promise of God, not just Hope in whatever you want to hope for. Hope in the promise of God 
absorbs gloom and anguish. And so my question to you, my challenge is, do you let it? Because when there's a promise that we're not reminding ourselves of, or maybe sometimes we're not aware of, or we don't allow ourselves to be aware of in the midst of the grind and the things that we sometimes get consumed with, when that hope is not given voice, sometimes we allow our anxieties to speak louder than the promise of God that speaks over us. So do you let it? Do you listen to his voice? Do you turn off the technology frequently or even ever and listen to the Holy Spirit? Read your Bible, the papers, the paper kind, paper Bibles. They still make these. So on to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So it doesn't say uh, the good people, the morally upright people, God, God gave them some light. No, it repeats the people who walked in darkness. Think about your past. Think about the days where you thought that you needed to clean yourself up a little bit to qualify yourself for light. Those were bad thoughts because the word of God says the people who walked in darkness. And then to clarify, he gives emphasis, Isaiah, not Paul. He gives emphasis, the people who walked in a land of deep darkness on them, almost to point out like this is scandalous. On them has light shone. So not only does our passage display, number one, that hope, this sort of hope that absorbs gloom and anguish, but also light that absorbs darkness. Remember, this is a unique kind of darkness that I have to underline. First of all, it's darkness of a people who have already rejected the light. Isaiah 2 verse 5 O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And we know that, go from, verse, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, to th- the people of God rejected the light of God. But isn't it wonderful that we serve a God who doesn't reject people that reject him? <laughs> when we cancel him, he doesn't cancel us. When we turn our backs on him, He just runs faster. So in this context, darkness, this deep darkness, it's a type of darkness that we bring upon ourselves, that we walk deeper into the darkness. We walk away from the light, and we dwell in it. Like a fish in water, we dwell in this sort of deep darkness. See, in my life, My sin patterns, like self-pity or pride, haven't just been things that I do. It's sin habits that I dwell in. I just, I live in a state of of my mind being just, just sludged up by the muddiness of ways of thinking. Not just little things that I do from time to time. People who have dwelt in a land of deep, darkness. That's where Jesus comes and shines his light. And the darkness often is is so pervasive that we're walking around not even knowing we're blind, not even knowing we can't see. 
We don't have a perspective to know that there's anything such as something like seeing. I remember this to be the case for me when I was so awash in my perversion. I didn't know that there was any other way that you could, you could look at women than perversely. I didn't know that there was another way to see the Bible than to just kind of see it as a boring chore. I never knew that. I never actually read it when I was growing up. I heard it read when I would go to church, especially on Christmas time. I'd go to Christmas. I would go pretty much every week, but I would check out. I didn't have eyes to see. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I didn't have ears to hear. I didn't know there was anything like purity until the pure one purified me. He is a God of light. And it's not supposed to be that we walk in darkness. That's not what we were designed for. First John 1, this is the message we've heard from the beginning that God is, is light in him. There is no darkness at all. So God is light. And when he, when he created human beings, he, he created us to walk with him as children of light, full of the thrill and power and purity and adventure and joy and peace and conquest of walking with him. But though we were designed to walk as children of the light, we, we run to the darkness And even look at what John says about darkness, why we remain in the darkness. Think of John 3.16. Many of us have heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's verse 16. Verse 17 is, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might have life in believing in him. Verse 18, this is important. Verse 18 is that, not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that we might have life. For he who does not believe has been condemned already. For he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. So the context where Jesus sends his Son into the world to redeem us from the darkness is that we've already rejected God. We're already walking in darkness, and we're self-condemned. And then verse 19 of John chapter 3. Thanks for bearing with me there. This is what it says. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Makes you think of the land of deep darkness that Isaiah is talking about. This is the people. We are the people. Don't don't think that, okay, we kind of deserved, we deserved the light, and Jesus wanted to come and save good people. No, in a land of deep darkness has light shone on a people of of darkness. There is hopelessness that is King Ahaz is really just a, a caricature caricature of our hearts apart from God. And this is where Jesus enters. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among those who are dwelling with darkness because we love darkness, didn't want to come to light. And this is the amazing thing about the Messiah. Every other religion, it's you try to get to God 
every other idea. You try to get to God. You try to get to mindfulness and prove yourself. But our faith is categorically different in that when we're running from God, even our best religious efforts to try to be better, we can come to church and give money and sing songs that are not driven by honoring God. We can, it, it can actually often be in our hearts darkness and not seeking his light. And yet, when we're running after darkness, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, runs to the people of darkness and burns away the darkness with his light. Every other faith, every other idea is you try to get to God. And this faith is a God who comes to a people who are not trying to get to him, but are running from him. And he burns away the darkness with his light. All the things are false loves, the things that don't satisfy us, the things we just think we're going to need, the Cyber Monday specials that we think are going to satisfy us, the false gods in our life, he burns away the desires for that so that we can be a people that doesn't just walk in the light, but loves the God of light. How does Jesus do this? I can't explain it. I can just enjoy it. I can walk in the light and know that I am no longer walking in darkness. There's something about this Savior. So verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest. So we have a hope that absorbs gloom and anguish and light that absorbs darkness. We have a joy that absorbs depletion. Depletion, the, the poverty and the the lack that we suffer, there's a joy that absorbs it. When God wants to bring light into darkness, he doesn't just deal with the symptoms. He doesn't just say, well, I'll give you a few things that you think you need. He completely gives us a joy and a, and a, and a power that we're not even searching for. He doesn't just give us the things we think we need to quell our anguish. He gets right to the heart of what we really need and restores our hearts and restores our relationships. Now check out this link in verse 3. You have multiplied the nations. So there's this multiplication of people. And then the next thing it says is you've increased its joy. Isn't it amazing that there's a, a link between a multiplied people and a joy that increases? I found this to be true in my life. The joy in my life doesn't come from anything other than restored relationships with people that I can be bound to trust in. I can be trusting in a people that are also needing the same Savior as I need and getting their wholeness from the same Savior that's bringing me wholeness. Transformed people that can walk in reconciled relationships. That's what this verse 3 is talking about. In fact, 1 John 1, it had, I'd already read this verse to you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. He goes on to describe what happens when we are redeemed by the God of light and what it does to our relationships. So check out the link between God restoring us to the light and then also restoring our ability to walk in fellowship with other people. The same multiplied nation 
and increased joy also fits in here. First John 1, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And why is that? It's because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Even the implication of sin that makes us unable to respect and dignify our brothers and sisters. He gives us power because we have a transformed heart by the God of light to experience his joy and then also enjoy fellowship with others. We're not trying to protect ourselves from the sins of others because we've been washed of our own sin. And we have a a Savior that will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we don't, I don't have to love you only if you love me back. I can love you out of the overflow of the God who's brought in light to my darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's kind of like how Isaiah said that when he multiplies and increases our joy, we see the multiplication of the nation. And this promise is fulfilled in the church as we experience the body and blood of Jesus broken for us. And this Christmas, I want to encourage you to enjoy God's people. My kids, my wife, we were in the car driving the other day back from a soccer thing or driving back from something. <laughs> and we, we asked our kids, we said, what's your favorite Christmas memory? We got, we got some of the younger ones were having some trouble. They needed some help kind of. Uh, they didn't have a lot of memories because they don't have a lot of years. But uh, it was funny. We could reminisce and remember all the things that the Lord has done. And let me tell you, all the most wonderful memories had to do with experiencing God's presence in other people. Had nothing to do with the, the, the things, the, the meals we're preparing, the, the, the things that we tend to, to occupy our space, the presents that we're buying, the things that come and go. No, it was the people that God redeems and capacitates to enjoy one another. I think if you look back on your experiences, the, your greatest joy has been the redemption of other people. The greatest pain that God can heal has been heartache with other people. And the same Savior secures the healing and the joy. And it's about multiplying a people. Let's get to verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken goes on to say the boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood. So all the war, the war stuff will be burned as fuel for the fire. Finally, this promise displays a gift that absorbs enmity and oppression. So we, we've already talked about the unrighteous failed leadership of King Ahaz and others. And it's led to this enmity, this war, these, these false exchanges between nations. And there is no security in the land. And this promise is saying all of this light and darkness and joy and multiplied redeemed people, it will cause the end of wars. It will be burned as fuel for the fire. And you, the way that this, this, these verses are progressing, 
you're thinking that, okay, something mighty and powerful is coming. It, it sounds like there's going to be some sort of like hydrogen bomb that's going to go off in any moment here. What has the power to end wars and break yokes and burdens? There's something powerful coming. Man, like th- we're getting ready to chest bump each other as verse 5 draws to an end. And then all of a sudden verse 6 says this. For unto us a child is born. And that's what I'm thinking. Wait a minute. How's a child going to burn away all the war? There's got to be a mistake. Was this, I'm looking for a footnote. Like, is this like accidentally placed in here? No, no, no. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. What kind of child is this? Isaiah answers that. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His peace must be so strong, and his counsel must be so wonderful that every atom bomb in comparison, every war, every army in comparison is like a bunch of little chihuahuas running away. At the gravity of this peace and this wonder. See, he is a gift. The true king is not a taker like King Ahaz. He's a giver that's so generous that he became the gift itself. The God child. His name will be. Now with my remaining time, I just want to unpack this this strange phrase. Wonderful counselor. First of all, this word wonderful, it's a translation. The word wonderful is a translation of a Hebrew word that can mean marvelous, wonderful, extraordinary. I mean, is Jesus not the most extraordinary person who has ever been? How unlike every person and every leader is he? I mean, I have a little bit of grace for the people who didn't quite see that he was the king because there's never been a king like him and there never will be another king like him. He completely defies all expectations that we could put on him. When you expect him to zig, he zags. When you expect him to defend the law, he tells a story. Like, Whoa, what's going on here? When you expect him to heal his friend, he lets him die. And then he cries about it. And then he brings him back to life. What? That's the leader he is. He is a wonderful counselor. When you expect him to take up arms, he disarms everyone and stops armies. When you expect him to set up a new kingdom and bring Israelites into it, he doesn't bring a new kingdom. He brings his eternal kingdom, and he says, for you to see this, you have to be new. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And then how does he uplift us and encourage us to continue on walking in this kingdom? He says, daily you will die and take up your cross and follow me. He is an upside down type of leader because we're upside down. He's always been right side up. When you expect him to give judgment, he takes judgment upon himself. He receives the penalty and punishment that our sins deserve 
and he suffers on a cross. His counsel is wonderful, and everything about him is wonderful, extraordinary, unexpected. (laughs) Things that were said about him at the end of Matthew 7, they marveled at him, for he taught as one with authority and not just any regular teacher. See, this isn't just regular counsel. It's wonderful. In Mark, it says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And here's another Christmas challenge I have for you, beloved. This holiday season, read the words of Jesus and see just how wonderful it is. Remind yourself of how wonderful he is. Hear his words. I remember when I was first coming and being drawn by the Holy Spirit, I read the words of Jesus, you know, the red letters in the old Bibles, and I don't know what happened to me, but I've never been the same. You hear the words of Jesus, and you know he is too good to not be true. And starting the day and for the rest of your life, see for yourself more and more. Spend time with Jesus. Turn your phone off again. Just spend time with him. Listen to his words. Take up one of our Advent guides and listen to the words of the Bible and remind yourself of the wonderful and peculiar type of person Jesus is. He's wonderful, and he's counselor. Counselors give advice, but Jesus gives advice and so much more. Some of the best counselors I've had in my life, I've I've seen a lot of professional counselors, and I'm still seeing more therapists, um, and I'll probably, for the next several decades, see more counselors and, and friends of mine that whether I pay them or not, I need help, just like you do. And, and God has revealed to me many, many times that I'm valuable, valuable enough to invest in, and so are you. So if, if you have any sort of stigma about professional counseling, just tell yourself, I'm valuable enough to invest in, Amen. Moving on from that, though, because some of the best counsel I've gotten from people hasn't just been things that people have said, but people who have a gift of being present, being there, like locking in to listening well. Jesus is the God who comes, the God who's present. They waited for him for over seven centuries after this, t- this promise, and he came. And Jesus died after living the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He got up out of the grave, and he said, I'm going away now, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. And Jesus is present. I want to challenge you and encourage you to be present with Jesus like he's present with you. His light absorbs our darkness because his blood has absorbed our sin and his life has absorbed our death and so that we can actually be present and be living And I want to remind you that to be alive in Christ, often you have to die to yourself, like he says daily. And you have to die to certain things, certain anxieties, certain distractions, certain social media habits to be present with the present one. Lord, help us 
Help us to be present with you. Lord, you are present with us. And even as we celebrate the presence that you've left us, you said, do this in memory of me. I pray that you'd give us the ability, even at the table, to not just go through the motions and think about the the body and blood and just do things, what we're familiar with. I pray that you'd give us the power to see that you are present with us. And as an act of faith, we can receive communion in a way that we say as a commitment, I am choosing to be present with you. Lord, I pray that our choice today would give us new power and new habits and a a new grace to allow more habits and more choices like this to flourish from this day forth and forevermore in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?